0: the Unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Preston Dennett is back again to talk, in part, about his new book, Onboard UFO Encounters, with the subtitle, True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials. Now, I did an interview last year with Preston, and we talked about his previous book, titled Schoolyard Encounters, 100 True Accounts. So recently when I found out about his new book, I contacted him, I got his book, I read it, uh, most of it, and we set up a time to talk. But just two days before I was supposed to call Preston to record our interview, I found out that Whitley had just interviewed Preston and that interview was up online. So I listened to Whitley's interview, which is great, and I suggest anyone listening now must listen to him and Preston. There's a lot in that interview that's, that, that is wonderful. Now, together, they cover a lot of the stories in the book, including one account that has to do with some concerns and worries Whitley had about what he had written in Communion, and that goes back now over 30 years. So when Whitley was talking with Preston, there is a beautiful revelation that takes place and it comes from an account in Preston's book, and this is from one of the on-board the craft experiences. And in this story, told to Preston by by one of the experiencers he's working with, a gray being holds up the book communion. Now, this takes place on-board a craft. This gray being holds up the book communion, and this leads to a very thoughtful exchange between Whitley and Preston. Now, I don't want to spoil anything, so please, just go listen to that episode. Now, given all that, I did not want to post an interview that was similar to Whitley's. So I listened to his interview, I made some notes, and I didn't want to cover the same ground. So I I made up a list of quick little questions. And I did this in a way to try to understand Preston's work and his methodologies. And this ended up to be so much fun. and. And, you know, when I was asking these questions, like, both of us were laughing a lot, and it's the most engaging part of the interview, and this takes up the last half of the show. And this light mood is much different than most of my interviews here. And the subject of UFO contact, I mean, usually brings with it a lot of seriousness, and it felt so good to have this light mood. This conversation was recorded Sunday, April 26th, Two thousand and twenty. Please enjoy. Preston, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me.
1: Hey, thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure.
0: Hey, the initial thought for this interview was to talk about your book, Onboard UFO Encounters. And the subtitle of that book is True Accounts of Contact with Extraterrestrials. And today we're recording this on sunday april 26th and on friday i didn't realize it but whitley had interviewed you and his show went up online so i kind of and i want to make sure not to cover the same ground so i'll uh, you know we can we can focus on stuff that wasn't talked about in whitley's interview and for any of the listeners here who have not heard whitley's interview i recommend it highly it was really great and and what, one one chapter that really struck me as I guess almost powerful and sort of unsettling or more than a little bit unsettling was chapter five about the woman Lynette. Could you talk about that chapter?
1: Yeah, Lynette, she's become a really good friend. I speak with her quite often and uh, just an amazing lady. Uh, She's born in, let's see, 1957 and uh, pretty much immediately started having unusual experiences. She would You know, as a very, very young girl, uh, she would wake up to see figures in her room. This is in LaGrange, Georgia. And uh, wasn't quite sure what was happening. She thought these were monsters coming out of her closet. Uh, When she told me, yeah, closet, I'm like, oof, heard that a million times. Uh, These figures often seem to come and go, the greys in particular, through people's closets. And that's what was happening here.
0: You know, this is this is something I I did for a while I was collecting the questionnaires and kind of comparing and contrasting the questionnaires that were put out on uh researchers websites and that was on almost every questionnaire. You know, they were very some some were very obvious questions like um uh have you ever seen a UFO? That kind of thing. But there were a lot that seemed a little odd and and I have since learned that they're very normal and one of the questions was, do you have a fear of closets? <laughs>
1: crazy right i mean i hear it all the time it's definitely a red flag and so when she mentioned that i'm like oh here we go so it didn't surprise me a bit um i think they use it as a way to come in and out without knowing there's probably not going to be anybody in there (laughs) i don't know but it turns up a lot Uh, so yeah she's like five or six years old and has these figures coming into her bedroom didn't Recognize him as as grays uh, until much later, but would call her dad and he'd come running with his shotgun and say, search the room, search the closet. Of course, there'd be nothing there and uh, really scared her badly. She had a hard time with it for a number of years. Uh, they, would, you know, pretty much rake, make regular appearances and then just one day seemed to stop coming in. Uh, but she she did have other strange incidents. Uh, she, she has a couple of brothers. Uh, once her little brother went missing, everyone's searching around for him. And uh, he comes out of the forest saying that he had seen a UFO. Uh, he now does not remember this, which is very interesting. And apparently she had the same experience. She was missing. Nobody could find her. And she comes out saying, I saw a UFO, you know, and uh, she has no memory of this, but her brothers do. So there's definitely some weird missing time type incidents uh, going on very early on. Uh, as a young girl, she you know, saw a couple of UFOs, certainly. Nothing super close up. Uh, but probably she didn't really quite realize what was going on until she became a young woman and started having missing pregnancies and it wasn't just one or two it happened several times uh, she would go to the doctor be diagnosed with pregnancy be taking prenatal vitamins you know the whole deal and suddenly it would just disappear now uh, first time it happened it was she was 19 years old and she was about five months along and uh, the doctors told her well I don't know you must have absorbed the fetus So that started to concern her. She was waking up with strange marks on her body and things like this. And through the years, she, this happened, gosh, I think it was four or five times. Uh, She ended up having a lot of kids and her kids started to report experiences from a very early age. So yeah, she has had so much. I I spent many hours (laughs) trying to piece together everything that's happened to her, uh, For example, in 1994, she was diagnosed with a a tumor in her lung. And uh, the doctors were very concerned. And they are like, well, we're going to have to do surgery. It looks like we're going to have to, you know, remove a quarter of your lung, half your lung. And it was around that time she had a close-up encounter. She was apparently taken on board. She remembers being laid out, examined, and this gray-type figure plunged his hand Directly into her chest, she said it was actually kind of painful, and she had a burning sensation. she didn't see any instruments or anything like that, but apparently, this was a healing event because she went back to the doctor, and the doctor was like, "Well, you know I don't know what to tell you, but we don't see your cyst anymore. Uh, your tumor it's disappeared. It must be some sort of spontaneous healing." So yeah lots of stuff like that. It was mostly unpleasant for her She said there were a few times where she'd find herself on board and they would shine lights on her and Kind of it felt like they were adjusting her aura or something because it just felt really good They were giving her all kinds of energy and it was just a very nice experience But really her ultimate experience when I think where she got the most information certainly I was in 2011 because a lot of people I talk to who have these experiences don't get information. The ETs are very tight-lipped. They will say little beyond, you know, don't be afraid. We won't hurt you. You won't remember this. Whereas she had a full-on conversation. Yeah, 2011, she opens her eyes and there's six grays standing around her bed and uh, she's fully conscious. And they're like, let's go. And she's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. They were very surprised. They told her you've never resisted before, you know, and she's like sensing confusion from them, but she's terrified, you know, and she does not want to go. And they shine this light on her and float her off the bed and pull her out into the living room. The walls open up like level or blinds, she says, and zoom, she's flying up right up into their craft. She says looked like the inside of a submarine is how it reminded her with metallic walls and sort of oval doorways. And they took her into this large chamber and there was a floating table. They put her on it and uh, started doing some sort of operation on her. And they told her that her heart had been damaged or was, you know, sick and they, they were curing her. And here's where it gets really interesting. Uh because they started to give her all kinds of information, they told her it is to our benefit to keep you well uh they they called her a cow of all things. This isn't in the book you know, I just learned this uh but they said you're such a good cow that we want to keep you well and I'm like they use that word cow <laughs> like
0: like like a like property like a like a
1: dairy farm kind of cow kind of property yes oh. I'm, and she says, yeah, that's what they called me. I'm like, well, that's a little rude. I was going to say,
0: yeah, we <laughs> like, what, that's so, any word but cow. Yeah, that's. So anyway, go on,
1: please. Yeah. So uh, she uh, started getting a lot of information from her. Now, this one being that was talking to her had kind of a look different from the others. He had a sort of almost silverier skin, not, not so much gray, but almost and neon blue eyes. And was actually really kind. And he told her that he was her son, made from her genes. So that really got her attention. And then he started to tell her all this stuff. He told her that she has to stop eating meat and that it's because of her diet that they had to heal her heart. And they said, and I'm quoting now, You must tell people to stop eating animals. You must tell people that you are all interconnected. The power of intention is real thought is real. If you don't stop putting out the greed and negativity you are putting out, you are going to kill your race. So they really kind of went on that vein for a while and explained to her that this is what had happened to them. They told her, we are afraid you are going to do what we did. The power of intention is real and you have to pay attention to this. So I thought that was very interesting. He explained that they had lost the ability to reproduce and they had bred out their emotions. Uh, he took her to a room filled with the these jars, kind of bell jars is how she described them, each having a hybrid baby inside. And uh, they told her, these are your children. Uh, so that, that kind of freaked her out a bit and uh, went on to give her a bunch of predictions which was very interesting. Now she had had throughout her life, a lot of psychic stuff, kind of always wondered where it came from. She predicted the death of uh, Martin Luther King, completely freaked her parents out, Uh, 9-11. She knew about that before it occurred. Uh, And they were telling her other stuff. They said that there was a huge earthquake fault uh, leading south through the center of the United States. They told her that Hurricane Katrina What was a devastating hurricane, but that there would be many much more devastating hurricanes following that, uh, which did turn out to be true and uh, told her flat out that they gave her this ability as a gift to replace what, quote, we've taken from you. Now, I found that really interesting because I heard the same quote from another witness, same exact quote. And a lot of these people who are having experiences have a really pronounced psychic ability. So I think there's something to that. And uh, he just went on from there. Um, one really interesting, he said, this the gray, told Lynette, he said that if people should start disappearing from the planet, it was because of them and was being done for, quote, the universal good. You know, that's interesting because we have you know a lot of missing people these days. Uh, that's kind of a big thing right now.
0: I agree. That one was very distressing to read that part, yeah.
1: Right? Uh, he said also that people have mistaken them for angels throughout history, and a lot of the accounts that we have of angels were actually them. Uh, he told her that they have been manipulating the genetics of humans for a very long time, but not only humans. And this was really fascinating to me told her specifically that they had boosted the emotional intelligence of dogs and cats in an attempt to sort of improve their ability to interact with humans. And I thought, wow, you know, because, of course, dogs and cats are the most popular pet.
0: Oh, yes, yes. Everyone loves their dogs and cats. Yes. Most of the love in the world seems to be directed at cats and dogs. Exactly.
1: Right. They're practically human. I mean, the way people interact with them. And they've got very complex emotions. We know this, and this is what the E.T.s are telling her. <laughs> you know, she's like in her mid-fifties at this point, or uh, and she's like, "Why are you still abducting me? You know, when is this going to stop?" She doesn't like it, and uh, they told her, "You know, your eggs are still good. We can't stop until we are finished." And uh, basically said that they really want her to tell people about them. That really surprised her because. Pretty much up until then, it had been, don't talk about it, you won't remember. That was really how they were much more focused. And now they're like, yes, tell people, tell people, tell them to stop eating meat, tell them we're all interconnected, tell them about us. Uh, So yeah, it's a really amazing case.
0: So so that line about tell people, has this flipped over in the last decade or so? because i my sense is that there was always this like don't tell people don't tell anyone about this i'm thinking more about the men in black that arrive at the you know at people's doors they ominously say don't tell anyone about this and then this message of you need to tell people that seems to be new in about the last 15 or so years am i am i reading into that incorrectly
1: uh no i, th- I it's kind of what i've noticed and it's puzzling to me and i was looking at that and i'm thinking to myself okay Here we are with this whole UFO, I'll call it an invasion. It's essentially what it is. Uh, But it's, while we know UFOs and extraterrestrials have been around for a very long time, you know, when I say extraterrestrials, I do think that's what we're dealing with. At least, you know, a good portion of what people are encountering here, I think, are extraterrestrials in the classic sense, beings from other planets. Perhaps they can travel interdimensionally, but they seem to be very much like us. And we know they've been visiting us for, gosh, hundreds of years, if not thousands. Thousands, I'm sure. I mean, just judging from cave paintings and hieroglyphics and things like this.
0: And 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 folklore and mythologies, yeah.
1: Right. But now here we have the modern age of UFOs, 1947. This huge super wave, you know, s- spreads across the world. And this is when we first started hearing about onboard experiences, abductions. We don't have anything historical, that's like what's going on now. This is historically unprecedented. There may be a few cases of onboard experiences, but where you've got, you know, thousands of them, and it started around 1950 or so, right, with the modern age. And So this is when we started having hybrid babies, and this is when we started having, you know, large-scale abductions or onboard experiences. And so now, but some 70 years have passed since this project, this agenda on the ETs part began. So I think they're moving along with their timeline somehow. And initially, yeah, most everyone I've talked to who's had these experiences has a hard time remembering it, are often told by the ETs not to talk about it or, you know, have their memory wiped of the event. And uh, here's, A story, you know, just a quick aside. I interviewed this one lady about a UFO experience she had here in Southern California. Called her back two weeks later for a follow-up interview. And she's like, what are you talking about? I don't remember this experience. Um, I don't remember even talking to you. She had completely forgotten the entire UFO experience and me interviewing her.
0: And you had notes and you had... had... I had the tape. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that really upset her. So here's this problem we have with memory and recall and you know, don't talk don't talk Um, In her case, you know the whole family she and her sister were having encounters and the ETs were very dead set On them not remembering it. The younger sister was very feisty and fully remembered her experiences completely consciously Um, She's like I'm not remembering I'm gonna remember you can't make me forget like you better not tell your parents She says, I'm going to tell my dad as soon as I get up, this sort of thing. I mean, they would argue about it. So now here we are moving forward, and this is a pattern I'm seeing. Yes, people, particularly among people who have gone far along in dealing with their experiences and have been able to have conversations and have been able to get information out and have kind of moved past the fear, like Lynette initially had a real hard time with this. Now she's much happier. You know, she's gotten through the fears, and uh, she doesn't feel like these guys are evil or mean or anything like that. She feels they're just misunderstood, and this is exactly like another case, uh, Dolly, whose case is in the book. Uh, same thing. She had a hard time with it initially, but now she's good with it. And they're telling her also, talk about us. I see. This was other people who've, you know, progressed beyond sort of. Fear-based level that they're at, so I think that's what the ETs are looking for when they like, all right, this person's ready to be a you know honest spokesperson.
0: You mean to let them get past that sense of fear, that past that sense of of um, of being a victim. Yeah, and then and then talk about it from it. They would because their voice would be entirely different. They're, you know the message or the story they tell would be quite different when they had evolved to that new point.
1: Right. I think it's partially the witness themselves too, because often a witness reaches a point. I, I see it pretty often. People feel compelled to get their story out. They just really want people to know. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's come from the witness or, you know, from the ET guys, but I sure see it.
0: And that word compelled, that shows up a lot in the, you know, like in, in my writing and in my, in what people tell me that word compelled, I was compelled to do something and I feel the same thing. Hey, We need to take our very first break. For non-paying members, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on the unseen, and we are talking to UFO researcher Preston Dennett about his new book, Onboard UFO Encounters. And just before the break, we had talked about Chapter 5 in the book, uh, about this woman, Lynette, and she was dealing with. Now the, it was really troubling when I read that chapter. She was. She tells of um, hearing her child scream, I think, and then goes into the hallway and is frozen, unable to move, but still able to watch and listen as these gray beings escort her child out of the house.
1: Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, it's parents' instinct to protect their child, and here she's paralyzed on the couch, watching her young son be escorted out the house by greys she watches the walls open up and boom he's gone and she has no memory except waking up the next morning in her bed and uh you know he woke up he felt very groggy and uh had dreams of things being stuck into his neck and you know she had you know eventually seven children oh my word yeah this is beyond the missing pregnancies. Uh, she, she's Mormon, uh, or was, uh, but uh, so that's part of the reason. Uh, but she said all her children have the same little round-heeled scalpel mark across their hip, the same hip, the same size, the same shape, same place. So she knows they're all having experiences. Uh, her youngest daughter and her son, Lee, who was abducted, Talked about scary leprechauns that would take them away. Uh, all of them were drawing pictures about, you know, this sort of thing. That's her main issue with all of this is the lack of control. She's fine with herself, you know, fine, take me, uh, but doesn't like the fact that her children are involved.
0: So for me, like, I people contact me. Like, I'm not a like, I, I'm not really out there as far as being a researcher the way other people are. And I still get a lot of people contacting me, and the hardest thing, by far the most emotionally challenging thing I have to deal with in this, in my role, I guess, as doing this kind of research, is when parents call me up and say, I think my children are being taken, and I don't know what to do. Yeah. What do you say? I mean, what can you say?
1: Oh, it's difficult. Yeah. Because this is a question I always ask. I'm like, all right, so you're having experiences. What about your parents, you know, your grandparents? And they're like, yeah, you know, they, they dug, my mom told me how she was chased down the road by a UFO and that's all she remembers. Or my grandma had a very close, you know, this sort of thing. And then I go, well, do you have any children? And uh, when they do, almost universally, particularly people who are having repeated onboard experiences, their children report experiences as well. And, uh, it's, you know, I don't normally get to interview these children because the children, I uh, don't want to talk about it. You know, when the parents ask them, oh, what happened? They're like, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, so it's very scary for them. Sometimes parents find out when they walk up and they see their child drawing a gray ET.
0: Yes, I've got that. I've got that a lot where parents will like, send me the pictures. They'll say, here's, here's the picture my child just drew. What do I do?
1: Right. Or they'll play act out scenarios that you've seen abductions. Like one lady um, saw her daughter. She was taking all her dolls and taking the lamp and putting the lamp over the dolls. And she says, what are you doing? She says, I'm healing them, Um, which is something we see on onboard encounters. Uh, So, yeah, uh, I definitely tell parents to uh, approach their children carefully. and. Uh, talk about the subject in a sort of a, a level, to a degree. I mean that the children are comfortable with. They want to talk about them as if they were dreams. That's fine. Uh, you know, but don't push them into talking about something they don't want to talk about. You know, because they have to deal with it on their own level. Yeah. And some people never will confront this. They just prefer to call them UFO dreams, and they live their life as normally as possible. Where others pursue it, you know, and want to sort of see where it goes. I do encourage people to keep a diary of events uh, because this really helps.
0: I I agree. That's the one thing I can say. You know, I have to do the little talk where I say, like, I am not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. It's very difficult for me to give advice or to make a diagnosis of, you know, these very, very stressful traumatic events but i What well, the one thing i say is keep a journal date everything just put the date on it keep a journal yeah nobody but you will ever need to read it
1: yeah you don't need to tell the child you know, oh you know i think this is aliens we're dealing with or anything like that uh, unless they ask it's kind of like dealing with other sensitive subjects like sex or you know politics or things like this so you sort of ease children into understanding of what's going on uh, and the diary of events is crucial because these sort of events can slip from your mind. And as we've found out in a way that's beyond, you know, a normal life event.
0: And then, yeah. And just, just the sheer volume of it. I think that some people are, it's tough to, to hold so much in your head at the same time and having it written down. They have that. So, so is, um, have you noticed a change or an evolution in let's say the last twenty years or more of the children's experiences i mean are are they lessening in the trauma aspect? do you think
1: um i it's hard to say you know because encounters are really individual, and so are you know the individuals themselves, so two people can have the same encounter and react in completely different ways. And what I generally see is with children, it's not super scary. I, um, like one lady, uh, Anne is her name, she would have these greys come in and she, she'd get really excited because it was playtime. You know, she knows it was the middle of the night and she, it was clear these weren't, you know, normal human beings, but it was fun. And this is something I hear with, you know, for very young kids, it's not always scary
0: and I tell that to to parents you know I said oftentimes the children are not reporting frightening things and my sense is that the the ufo occupants must be aware of how traumatic their presence can be and they must do what they can to lessen that that traumatic power
1: yeah sometimes they dress up as clowns and
0: which is almost scarier to me
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it doesn't work it's created a very you know pervasive Fear of clowns in our culture. I
0: wonder if I've often wondered if that fear of clowns. I mean, everyone sort of says this creepy clown is like you know you don't even need to say creepy in front of clown because they're all kind of creepy. But you know what? Where that where that fear comes from? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I've talked to several witnesses who've had that happen when they were very young. Once I made the mistake of bringing this up at a UFO support group, and I'm like, "Has that? How how do you guys feel feel about clowns?" I mean, the room erupted. <laughs> they screamed, literally. I mean, everyone started talking at once, and some are really upset, and others like, oh, my God. So that's absolutely a thing. Um, and it's not only just clowns, superheroes, teddy bears, <laughs> this sort of thing.
0: Well, even in Lynette's chapter, she did say she had a fear of owls.
1: Yeah, animals are very common. Owls, as you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, but a lot of these kids are taken on board, and they they get to play games. You know, they play, like, telepathy games or telekinesis games or just play with toys with the other little greys. And you know how kids are. They don't pay attention to skin color or size or anything like that. They have no judgment. Yeah. So uh, it's often a very wonderful experience for very little kids, but not always because... Uh, you know, it can be very scary when someone appears in your bedroom at night.
0: Hey, let's take our second break, and we'll come right back, uh, and then we can talk more about your work and your methodology and some of the some of the patterns you may have been seeing in this research. for For non-members, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Preston Dennett, and we are talking about not only his books and his research, but his methodology. Now now for here's a question for you. The these collection books, which you've done a lot of, you know, collections of onboard experiences, collection of healing experiences, collection of schoolyard experiences. So these collections, collections of UFO encounters by state and things like that. So these read like um like a little a bit of like an encyclopedia in a way. There's there's a succinct chapter highly focused on one person's experience. What's the overall value of this type of book?
1: Uh, Yeah, you know, it's something I kind of fell into. I think it's one of my areas of, one of my specialties, because I have access to a very large library of UFO information. And, uh, you know, I can watch a movie. I, I won't remember it. I have to watch it a couple of times. Whereas this UFO stuff really excites me, and I, I have a really good memory of it for some reason.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, you're describing me, too, that I feel the same way.
1: <laughs> right? So I've got this huge database, you know, that I can refer to, and also that's kind of swirling around in my head. And I start to see these patterns, and I'm like, wow, like the schoolyard book. I was heard about a few visitations where uh, UFOs have visited schools, you know, the Rua Zimbabwe case where a UFO landed next to the school and like some 200 kids saw it and I knew of other cases and I thought, you know, you know there's four or five famous cases, but I've got a couple myself. I wonder if there's more. And I found a hundred and I'm like, wow, this is something I don't think people have really are aware of or noticed.
0: And I'll interrupt. The um the, the interview we did last year, about eight months ago, was on the schoolyard cases.
1: Yeah. So this was a sort of a pattern I noticed. This is how I started, you know, doing uh, writing about UFOs. I had researched for a good 10 years before I put out my first book, but I had written a number of articles revealing these weird patterns, like phone call from an alien. That was an article I wrote for Fate magazine because I heard of a, several cases where people had received strange phone calls that were related to their encounters. And these are good cases. I mean, one's Betty Andreason, you know, a, mm-hmm. Raymond Fowler. The other is from Bud Hopkins, his star witness for intruders, De- Debbie Jordan, I believe it's a pseudonym, uh, or Kathy Jordan. I think you know which case I'm talking about.
0: Oh, yeah. Her real name is Debbie Kabul. She's open about her herself now. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They both received strange phone calls. <laughs> Whitley Strieber had a voice come over his stereo. So I started looking for it and I found a bunch of cases. And this fits the pattern of UFOs affecting electromagnetic instruments like radios and TVs and cars. Why not phones? So here's another example. And this is kind of what I fell into with, you know, my research is looking for these patterns. Like just recently, my next project, here's a little scoop, is uh, drive-in theaters. I found a couple of cases where UFOs targeted drive-in theaters in a really brazen, just in-your-face way. I mean, they come right down over the theater, right next to the screen, and scare the living daylights out of the entire audience.
0: Oh, here, here, just just a, a few weeks ago, I interviewed Ryan Sprague. He wrote the book Somewhere in the Skies, and we talked about one of those cases, and it was Scott Santa. And and Scott Santa and I have since become friends on Facebook and we, you know, send notes back and forth about music and movies and stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I just got a hold of him, actually, because I put out a request on Facebook. I'm like, all right, guys, driving theater encounters, anyone? Because at that point I had collected well over 50. I'm now approaching 100. Wow. And uh, these are not coincidences. I mean, yes, it's a great place to see a UFO, you know, a driving theater. You're out at night. You're staring at the sky for a. Know a couple of hours, it's ideal, but no, I mean, yeah, some of the cases are coincidental flybys for sure. But I'm gonna say 80%, these objects come swooping down, and in most cases, it's really interesting, they come right next to the screen, or come up from behind the screen, or hover right above the screen. Yeah, Uh, I mean, they're affecting Scott Santa's cases of really extensive cases, Uh, there are some that are equally extensive wow wow so yeah these are the pattern i love love it when you find like these patterns i'm like wow look at this what does this say about the et's and their agenda on our planet
0: hey as i was reading this book i sat there and and uh i made some notes and i started making a list of things that show up and we can just go through this little checklist we don't have to dwell too much on it but just Tell me if I'm off base here, so things that show up in people's experiences, people who have had the direct contact experience, um, psychic skills.
1: Uh, yeah, it's something I've definitely looked for. Um, these what I find interesting is people can have this first or they'll not have any psychic experiences at all, have a bunch of encounters and come away from it and suddenly they're ch- channelers.
0: That's my next thing. It says channeling. That's second right under psychic skills on my list here. Right.
1: Or they do healing. That's the third thing under my thing here. So, Uh, Yeah, all of this seems to come together. And I'm like, wow, what is going on here? Because, you know, in Lynette's case, they said, oh, this is our gift to you. That's exactly what they told Pat, another lady. But I don't know. I feel like in some cases they are attracted to people who already have that awareness.
0: I've wondered that. You know, do they... Are they attracted to people who have that awareness or is this psychic awareness a byproduct of being abducted?
1: Yeah, it's the chicken or the egg. Yeah, Um, it's hard to know. um, I think in a lot of cases it's a byproduct because that's what the ETs are saying uh, flat out. Like, you know, this is our gift to you. And I've heard it specifically mentioned, you know, over and over.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay, so down on the list here, I'll just read off some things. A newfound love of nature or environmentalism? Huge. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I looked into that, too, because one of the questions I always ask is, you know, what's your job? You know, what do you do for a living? And I found a really strange pattern, which is that a lot of people who are having really extensive encounters are doing good work for humanity in some capacity.
0: And, and for 25 years, if you had asked me that, I would have said, I teach outdoor wilderness skills and I take people out for long camping trips. And one of the goals is to teach or, I guess, imbue an appreciation of the wilderness.
1: Yeah, this is what I see. Teachers are huge in this field. A lot of teachers, a lot of doctors, uh, inventors, social workers, environmentalists, human rights, animal rights. I don't know a single abductee who doesn't love animals.
0: You know what? I'm on Facebook and I have a lot of friends on Facebook and some of them are experiencers and I, and they are the ones that put up the posts about adopt this puppy. This dog is at the shelter. Yeah. Please someone adopt it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, over and over again, I hear this. Um, they just love animals. I mean like one lady, she's, Rescues every kitten she can find. Another lady she works at the zoo. Another guy has his house filled with, you know, spiders and reptiles, and, and they love animals.
0: And... So so one woman, she was in my second book, her name is Kristen, and she's in a chapter called Kristen in the Desert, and her husband calls her Snow White, because when she goes outside, like the birds come up to her and the squirrels come up to her, and she has so many beautiful animal stories about animals, you know, wild animals, deer and fox just coming up to her, like that scene in, in Snow White, where like the, you know, the squirrels and the birds do the laundry and wash the dishes.
1: Yeah, no joke. I mean, I've had that myself i had a you know from a young age i had a raccoon approach me real close I once had a hawk land right next to me
0: oh oh tell that hawk story that's on my list too because that's that to me is that to me is whether it may or may not be uh uh a, a ufo type story but what that is to me is like a a a Piece of human folklore that is that I'm certain has been happening all throughout human history, and it's still happening now. Given your experience,
1: yeah, I've had a lot. A deer came up to me once, but the hawk one was interesting because I was in my condo. Um, I had taken the day off work because I was supposed to have an interview with someone, and I ended up, you know, being bitterly disappointed by this person, Uh, and I was really upset. Uh, And I I thought, you know, because I. It's really disappointing when someone lets you down, but when you're counting on them, right? And I was really questioning that. I'm out there on my balcony just like, gosh, why did this person let me down? And this, boom, this hawk just drops out of the sky and lands right next to me. And when I say next to me, I mean literally mm, two feet. I mean, I could have reached out and pet it. I didn't. Uh but man I've never ever had anything like that and I have to tell you I got a feeling that this was a sign <laughs> I mean it ha- I just don't see how something like this can happen uh and it really gave me an incredible sense of well-being like everything's fine you know and this is for you you know don't worry cuz so I was really upset I was you know kind of going off the deep end a little bit <laughs> it was an important meeting
0: yeah, so this is, I'm certain those experiences have happened to people all throughout human history. Since we stepped out of the cave, we've been having those experiences. And that's where our folklore and our mythology about totem animals comes from. That's. I think that's a beautiful, perfect story where, like, if you were living in the jungles of Brazil, you know, in a primitive tribe, and you had that experience, you wouldn't need to, like, analyze it. You would simply know. And I guess you didn't really analyze it too much. You did simply know, and I think that's what's happening. But I think our society doesn't really accept it. Maybe in fiction, you know, in, in a in a movie they might accept it, but they wouldn't accept it if it happened to them. I think a lot of people work hard to push that stuff out of their out of their mind.
1: Less so now, hopefully. I felt so good after that. I'm like, wow, I mean to have your mood switch from just, you know, not despair but, you know, dark to just this really wonderful sense of belonging and connectedness and Everything's right. Man, that was one of my best experiences.
0: Wow, that's beautiful. Hey, I'll go a couple more on that. Weird compulsive behavior. <laughs>
1: do you get that in, in these? <gasps> I do. I do. It's funny. <laughs> like one guy whose case is in the book, actually, uh, Tony is his name, had you know a, a UFO sighting followed by a very close-up sighting of a gray in Brentwood Park in New York. You know, that's where he lives near there and couldn't understand his behavior because when he would sleep at night, he had to have the light on. You know, he needed background noise and he would put little things on his doorknob so he would know if, you know, someone opened his door at night. And he's like, why am I doing this? I don't understand it. One guy, he actually would sleep under his bed, tried to explain to his girlfriend. He's like, you know, I don't know. I just this is the only way I can fall asleep.
0: Yeah, I, I know more than one person who put newspaper down around their bed, so if someone walked up to the bed, they'd hear the crinkly noise.
1: Yeah, baby powder, they'll sprinkle it all, <laughs> all over the floor. <laughs> and fan, I know someone who put a fan
0: in their rooms, because if someone walked through the door, they would have to pass across the fan, and then he would feel the break in the wind.
1: Right. I knew another who put dishes up, <laughs> all gla- <laughs> glasses all over the floor, so they would be knocked down. So this is, yeah, definitely a kind of compulsive behavior that I see. Uh, a lot of weird phobias. People can be walking along and they'll see. Remember those pictures of those big, wide-eyed children? Oh, yes, uh, yes. Oh, they, objectees <laughs> don't like that. <laughs>
0: they, they were creepy to me,
1: yeah. Or uh, mannequins might set people off. Lynette, I think it was her, um, hated Star Trek. Could not watch it.
0: <laughs> oh, you know this, I was just about to say this. I was on the tip of my tongue and I said, I don't need to see this. At the, at the end of the original Star Trek series. When the credits roll, right, they would have these still frames from separate shows. And one of the final frames was this image of this alien, a big bald alien with kind of big black eyes and this kind of horrid frown. And it was meant to be scary in the actual episode. And it was it turned out to be a puppet in the in the actual episode, but there was just this frame of that, and that's how the Star Trek television show ended as the credits were rolling. It was just a still frame of that and that. Always gave me the creeps. And I remember having a very, very bad nightmare about that as a little, little boy. I must have been five.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, I remember that image, actually. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I do. I do. Yeah. And these definitely in one lady, she's like, you know, I just don't like dwarves, midgets, <laughs> little people. I'm like, really? You know, and so these were all these. Phobias are something I definitely look for. Clowns, of course, we've already talked about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it can be anything.
0: Okay, here, let uh, me keep going. Increased synchronicities.
1: Uh, no. that is <laughs> um a huge thing. Uh, there are people who tell me that their relationships were set up by the ETs. <laughs> yeah. Hear uh, that? Um, over okay. And over.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. So Andrea and I. Whoa, wow. That's a story that'll that'll how andrea and i met is off the charts i won't go into it now yeah (laughs) wow our story is out of hand so
1: i know bud hopkins has cases like that uh john mack Um, Uh, eve
0: lorgan has collected a lot of those yeah
1: yeah like people who don't know each other meet each other later on in life like gosh you look familiar and suddenly realize oh this was the person i met on board a ufo that happened to beth collins and anna jamerson uh who put a book, wrote a book called Connections. Oh, I love that book.
0: I love that book. That's where they it's the big bee, they the big right. th- weird bee follows them around when they're at alone at the house for the weekend.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah they didn't they met each other later in life. Well, not really actually <laughs> they met each other when they were little girls on board a UFO even though they were geographically separated by large distances.
0: I I have a friend Suzanne and her partner Jack. They have that story too.
1: So that that's a weird coincidence. But it's all kinds of things. Uh, and it certainly happened to me. I mean, I can, you know, at my job as a bookkeeper, I used to go to the bank and the post office every day, pick up the mail and, you know, drop off the deposit. And I'd be in line at the post office and someone would start talking about UFOs to me. <clears throat> and I'd look down at my shirt because, you know, I do have a couple of UFO shirts, but I don't wear them to work. <laughs> or, or, you know, what, why is this person? There's nothing about me. that. Why are they talking about UFOs? And that's happened far too often. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I have a friend, and she has that same experience, too, where she actually gets in trouble at work. They basically tell her at work, like, stop talking about UFOs. And she's like, I don't talk about UFOs. And then she actually went into the, like, the little office where she was a teacher, and she went into the little office where the teacher's uh, lounge is. And as soon as she walked in, she heard the conversation changed to UFOs. The other people in the room were talking about UFOs. They turned to her and said, you know, like, you need to stop bringing up UFOs you need to stop talking about this. And she said, I'm
1: not talking about it. You are right. Or people get an impulse to go outside and boom, a UFO shows up. Uh, you know, I I remember one weird thing that happened to me was, uh, Stephen Greer was coming to LA to, you know, form C-SETI, a charter group. I'm like, wow, I'd love to go to that lecture, but it was like $300. I'm like, can't do it. I'm sorry. You know, as much as I'd like to see it, that's just I'm not going to pay that and the newspaper calls me up and said we've never done this before we just don't do this but would you go to that lecture if we paid for you and you could write an article about it i'm like hey sure you got it I thought that was strange it it's like
0: the it's like the path is gets laid out before you magically
1: yeah i ended up meeting some very crucial people at, at that you know one one lady became a chapter in one of my books Another became a very good friend. I connected with Steven Greer. He's like, here's how you contact a CE5. Here's his first case by Preston Dennett. I'm like, whoa! (laughs) And and here's another case by Preston Dennett. Those were where people used lights and lasers to call down UFOs. And so I'm like, wow! So
0: he was referencing you in his talk.
1: Yeah, he says, here's good cases about how you can initiate a a human-initiated UFO encounter. Here's a case by Preston Dennett from 1978 in San Diego, where a guy used lasers to call down a UFO. I'm like, holy cow! If I hadn't gone to this meeting, I would never know that he's, you know, quoting my cases. And uh, we ended up becoming friends, and you know, going to Topanga Canyon and actually calling down UFOs successfully.
0: And I have very strong opinions of Stephen Greer, but I, I will say, <laughs> like, if you put out a, a high level of intention, oh, that was a quote from the from the woman's son. <laughs> she basically said, you know, you know what it's telling me, just uh, the power of intention is real. You know, the quote you read earlier uh, when you read aloud from the book about uh, Lynette. Yeah, I was going to read that aloud. I said, oh, I'm going to take this quote and I'm going to read it aloud. and that one of the lines in that quote is the power of intention is real. And I believe that. And I feel that if you have a group of organized people, they're focused and they go through a ritual. I don't even think it matters what the ritual is. I mean, you can light a candle, you can all chant together. You can all hold hands. It doesn't matter as long as there's a, like a ritual. I think that, I think the power in that is can, so it does not surprise me at all that they are seeing UFOs. makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah. I know people who, it's something I always encourage people, if, like you've never seen a UFO, I'm like, well, go out and try this. You know, go out, meditate for a week, sit on the roof of your house. You know, I don't care if you live in the middle of the city. Uh, it works. These these beings are very telepathic. Uh, it's my sense that they monitor us very closely, and I say that because, you know, I think that they're, you know, probably listening to the radio shows like this, reading the books. Uh, looking at the pictures, uh, I was uh, interviewing one of the witnesses in the book, uh, Ramon, and after we hung up, he called me back You know, a couple of days later. He's like, you know, while we were doing an interview, there was a UFO landed in the street in front of my house. My son came running in after we got off the phone and described this event. I'm like, holy cow. While we were on the phone, this UFO was right over his house, or actually landed.
0: You know, I've been doing all this owl and UFO research, and I was talking to a guy on the phone, and he was pretty amped up. Like, he was like, I'm freaking out. Like, this stuff is so intense, and 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 he was like, I don't understand it, and I, and I was sitting there totally silent on the phone, because he's talking about owls and UFOs. He's talking about seeing all these owls, and I'm on the phone, and I'm, he's outside in his yard, and I thought to myself, he's going to see an owl. This guy's going to see an owl right now, and all of a sudden, he goes, oh, oh, oh my God, it's a UFO which is exactly the core of my research where owls and UFOs get mixed up. So I was I was I had the premonition he was going to see an owl. Not the premonition. I put out the thought that he would see an owl and instead he saw a UFO. And this that kind of thing is weirdly common in my research.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. I I always kind of like it when you get those weird coincidences cuz it makes me feel like you're on the right path. Exactly. You know, I started I started researching in 1986. And uh, when I heard a report in the news late it was like November and uh, for 1987 I'm like just freaking out because I found it was in my family friends and coworkers. and 1988 and 89 rolls around and I'm you know buying all the books and I'm starting to really investigate but I hadn't written anything you know and it was you know like a year later I had this ball of light come dropping down out of the sky right in front of my car and I had never seen a UFO in my life, and why suddenly now? You know, I think that they were aware of me. I really do.
0: Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it's it's like you know, one fellow Christopher Bledsoe calls them angels, and he says, "Well, they like if they're UFO occupants, like if they're ETs. How can they read my mind all the time?" Like he basically said, goes out into his yard and says, "I want to see an orb." Boom, an orb appears. That's what an angel would do. An angel would be able to monitor your mind at all times and be there yeah, like your guardian angel. But it, but a E.T., we have a different definition for that. You know, he, I understand the way he frames that. I understand that completely.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I always say, oh, yeah, I think these are E.T.'s, and I do because I think we have the crash saucers. I think we have the bodies. They're creating burn marks on the ground. They're on radar. Um, I think it's the theory that best fits. But I have to tell you, there's one guy in the book who's like, hmm, I think these guys might be demonic no evil, you know, spiritual in origin. And another guy had a very friendly encounters with Nordic-type ETs. I don't like that term. Uh, Human-looking is probably my preferred term. And he says they're angelic. You know, he feels it's related to the rapture that's coming and and people are going to find out that these beings come from God. And most think they're dealing with ETs, but there's one guy, Joe Gardner. He's like, you know what? (laughs) I'm not entirely convinced that, You know, I'm having encounters with Pleiadians and Reptilians and Greys and, you know, ghosts and all. He has a lot of paranormal experiences as well. His sense is, you know, he's more in the Jacques Vallée, Jerome Clark school of thought, where we're dealing with a uh, intelligence, a mysterious intelligence that's very uh, powerful, uh, but not necessarily extraterrestrial in origin, you know, as we would think of it perhaps interdimensional or something something that wears different masks and can you know put on an appearance of ets but isn't necessarily extraterrestrial
0: when i got your book i know joe joe and i used to talk on the phone quite a bit back around 2009 i haven't talked to him in years but we do a chat occasionally on facebook so um so yeah this has become a very i don't know what's the right word i want to say, i wanted to say clubby that's the wrong word but like it feels like 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 when i read these books like i it's my These are my friends in a way. These are my, I I don't want to use the term family, but I feel like I can relate so strongly to the people in in your book.
1: Oh, yeah. It's really interesting because close encounter experiencers um, vibe really well with each other. And it's interesting. They'll look at me sometimes and they're like reading my aura or something. and They're like, you've had contact. I'm like, well, (laughs) you know, I, I don't remember being on board personally or anything like that. Certainly, I've had a number of very close-up sightings. But, yeah, they definitely have a community.
0: Well, you're certainly doing the work that needs to be done, whether it's uh, whether you've ever been on board a craft or not. It certainly seems like they kind of zapped you with a, this uh, this purpose.
1: Oh, they know about me.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so. You know, Sometimes, you know, I, I'll lay off the writing and I'll pull back a little bit because it's a lot, you know, dealing with this. And uh, then I'll see a UFO, uh, you know, it's usually just an unexplained light that's slightly ambiguous. Like one time, driving down the freeway after work. And mind you, this is L.A. The freeway is crowded. And I'm like, wow, look at Venus. Because I would watch Venus, you know, as I would drive down the freeway towards the west. I'm like, Venus looks twice as big tonight. And then I looked over to the left. I'm like, oh, there's Venus. <gasps> uh, this is not Venus. <laughs> and I'm looking up at it. I'm like, does anyone see this? And whenever that happens, I'm like, what? Well, sometimes you get a little telepathic link. I mean, sometimes I've actually gotten messages straight up. Like, this is us. And uh, I feel like th- that sometimes happens. Like, if I uh, right when I put a book out, I'll get a sighting. Or if I haven't put one out in a while, um, I'll get this real strong urge. Like, hey, 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 you know, what? Stop taking a break. <laughs> get get back to work. Uh, from a sighting, you know.
0: Well, I mean. Um... Barbara Lamb had an experience where she finished a book and then she was at her home and she was she was abducted plucked out of her home and had a missing time event. This is a funny story here I'll tell the whole thing uh she's walking from one room to another in her house full daylight and she's like walks from the kitchen and goes into the living room There's this like eight foot tall reptilian standing in her living room, and she says she has no fear at all and she's very you know you must know Barbara.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've heard this story, actually, yeah. <laughs>
0: in, in a very soft-spoken way, she's she's in her, in her way, her very sweet, soft-spoken way, she says, like, I am the kind of person who doesn't like snakes or reptiles, so I should have been afraid. But I walked right up to it and said, why aren't I afraid? And she had a telepathic message that said, you know, I have been genetically bred, so I do not produce fear. And the next thing she knows, she's standing in the middle of her living room, and it's nighttime and the big giant reptilian is gone. So it just went from full daylight, boom, to nighttime. Some number of hours was missing. I don't remember what it was. And then under hypnotic regression, which is questionable and and everything like that, but she was lifted out of the house and she met with the beings on board the craft and they basically said, "Thank you so much for writing this book. We really like it." We were basically they gave her thumbs up on on her book.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing story and uh you know, I Looked into, you know, researchers and UFOs and how many have had encounters, most of them.
0: You know, I'm not going to do it publicly here, but um, I would say that if there's a researcher out there doing investigation into this kind of stuff, you should just assume they've had direct contact. And if they don't, that is a very small percentage. The people who have not had contact, I think, are, are I, they might not even exist. I, I it's, I, It would be incorrect to say 100%, but wow, I bet you it's pretty close.
1: Yeah, I think David Jacobs n- notably says no. No, I've never seen anything. Uh, but
0: but his but his clients say that they've seen him on board the craft.
1: <laughs> right, I've had pe- um, people tell me that too. One lady I was working with, was like, oh yeah, I saw you on board. I'm Like you're <laughs> kidding. She did. She did channeling. Right, and we were at a channeling session, and she was channeling for someone else, not me. But I was there, and uh, started to say, oh, you've got. You know, an implant in your brain, an implant here, and just like counted like five implants. And I blurted out, well, that seems like a lot. And, you know, still in a trance channeling, she turns to me and says, you've got more. <laughs> <I'm>
0: like, hey. <laughs> well, to the, Yeah, but we you can still go into the, to take a uh, airplane trip and you don't set off the uh, metal detector.
1: Nope, not yet. <laughs> Though I know people who do. So here's a question.
0: Have you had people tell you they don't squash bugs?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> One guy specifically, Andy from the Netherlands. Uh really sweet, sweet guy. Has that same affinity with animals. You know, he had an abduction with his brother as a very young boy. Um and probably a number of abductions because he has, you know, some memories of flying out the window and things like this. Uh but told me, "Yeah, I won't if there's a mosquito in my house." Um, I will save the mosquito, (laughs) which, you know, I'm sure he would do it for a cockroach as well, which are, you know, loathsome insects, but all life is absolutely sacred.
0: My sister laughed at me. I was at her house and she had an ant on the kitchen floor and I like got a little piece of paper and I scooped up the ant and I carried it up and I put it outside. She was like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I do this all the time. I like, what are the options? You know, so.
1: Yeah, my sister-in-law, who's, who has had contact, a sighting and a face-to-face encounter with greys, but nothing else, uh, ran over a squirrel once when I was in the car. Uh, we, we all were, and, and poor thing was devastated. I mean, she could not get over it. The fact that she killed a squirrel. <sighs> I, I felt really bad for her. So, yeah, that feeling of connection to animals yeah. is just beyond.
0: How, how about this one? The people who have a number. Like, you can say, what's your number? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, somebody will say, like, oh, I'm 333. I see 333 all the time.
1: Oh, why did you say 333? (laughs) I can't believe you said that. Uh, Because yesterday, I I had this lady, you know, she's been wanting to call me. She's from upstate New York. Um, Had a Nordic encounter as a young girl in the forest outside her home. And just this really incredible encounter. She's, like, gosh, 13 years old, walking down the path and sees... This bright, shiny person, most beautiful person she's ever seen. He was wearing a blue jumpsuit, had this winning smile, just gorgeous man. And, you know, she's just a little girl and he's a full grown guy. It's out in the middle of the forest. It's very peculiar. Uh, And they had this long conversation that she can't remember. Just this amazing encounter. I'm like, wow, you know, and I started asking her the questions to see if she's a full on experiencer. She was kind of on the borderline there but she, t- she told me something I've heard from other witnesses. She says, I don't know if this means anything, but for years and years, I woke up in the middle of the night at 333. Every night, sometimes, you know, but weekly <laughs> over and over, it must've been hundreds of times. I'm like, wow. Cause the, another lady I'd interviewed, she would wake up at 330, you know, night after night. She's like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I'm like, I have to tell you, I don't know. I don't know what this means. Could be a message. Of some kind, could be residual trauma from an earlier nighttime encounter, but I don't know. And I hear it, and here you are bringing Mm -hmm. it up, and the same exact number I heard yesterday. So coincidence within coincidence here. We're talking about coincidences.
0: (laughs) So Andrea, Andrea gets three, three, three all the time, and I get one, two, three, or if I get one, two, three, four sometimes in every once in a while i'll get one two three four five like it'll show up on the time count of something or some number somewhere and wow when i get that one i really pay attention
1: it's very peculiar i'd like to know what it means i feel like it's a a a sign so
0: in i think it was whitley streber's second book after communion the book that followed communion he talked about the nine knocks so when you break it down nine knocks is one two three one two three one two three and he wrote out a beautiful thing that I'm not I couldn't I can't do off the top of my head here, but uh, about the, the sort of spiritual meaning of the nine knocks. So that could be part of the explanation. I I might try to search that out and put it in the show notes.
1: Yeah. Or it's like what about these weird triangles that this, you know, put on people? This happened to, you know, one of the guys in the book, Tim Cannon. It's I think the same sort of thing we're dealing with. I'm not sure that this is, you know, a inoculation mark or a result from, you know, some implant or whatever i think that it's more of a calling card or a little tattoo even
0: on my blog i have uh i mean i probably have over 900 close to a thousand blog posts on my blog and it's taken 11 years now to get that far but i i have and that's very difficult to see it now i had it i remember as a little kid like in elementary school it's very clear i'm 57 years old now so there's not much to see but i can just barely make it out on my on my forearm just below my wrist about about six inches, kind of be- halfway between my elbow and my wrist, on my forearm, there's a uh, three small dots, and they look like little puncture marks, and they're still there. One of the dots is faded, so two are still very clear now. Whatever, uh, close to fifty years later, and and the other the one is very faint. So I have a I have a blog post that says triangle mark on my wrist, three dots in a triangle, and that by far is the single most popular post on my blog i get a few people a week for the last decade a few people a week write in and say oh i have those marks and then they write and write and write what it tells me is that there are people out there googling you know triangle left arm three dots wow and and i'm getting the same it's basically the same letter over and over and over again like what does this mean and i don't i don't know what it means and i think i've searched and searched vaccines and inoculations there's nothing that matches so
1: yeah and the fact that that's your most popular post well that's pretty much proof that it's a widespread
0: (laughs) by far like it's it's like triple the the closest second as far as there's little analytics you can look up on who looks up what on the posts wow so hey how about this do you get stories about people who were adopted
1: Yes, I do. And I mentioned that that to someone. She's like, oh, my God, I didn't even know that was a thing. And I
0: don't know if it's a thing, but I've sort of sensed it and I've heard other people kind of whisper it, but I've never actually kind of crunched the numbers, let's say.
1: Yeah, I can think of at least five people offhand who are adopted who are having major encounters. And it's now something I look for. When you interview someone, it's difficult because I'm like, "Okay, what's your job? I don't I don't like to pry into people's lives, you know? How old are you? Do you have any diseases? You know, this sort of thing.
0: I, I, yeah, what are the questions you ask? I mean, I can list a few that I ask. I mean, I ask, are you a creative type?
1: Do you do art? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm starting to ask people's political affiliations. <laughs> are you Republican, are you Democrat?
0: What are you finding out?
1: Um, n- no pattern there. Oh, great, okay, so. good. stay out of trouble in that one, good. <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you have to ask very personal questions. Um, I always ask, you know, a question I've, I don't like to ask, but I do is, you know, do you have anything medically unusual about you? Any diseases, you know, anything that's bizarre or strange or unusual, you know, unexplained injuries, scars, healings, diseases, and that turns up. People are like, yeah, you know, I have an extra vertebrae in my spine. I don't know if that means anything. I'm like, well, probably because I've heard two other people say that.
0: And that's very rare. Actually, I went to a, a, a um, chiropractor and had him count my vertebrae in my spine. I'm, I'm six foot tall and I have very short legs. Like I can wear like really short pants. <laughs> so I've got this long, long spine. And I was like, <laughs> do I have an extra thing? And he counted. He's like,
1: no, no, you have the right number. So I...
0: what about the RH blood factor? Have you looked into that at all?
1: Um, not in depth. You know, I I'll often ask people and they don't know their blood type. Uh, but I don't think it's a thing.
0: I, I I used to I was there was a about probably around 2012, um, like everything was a buzz with RH thing and and Ray Hernandez with Free did a very comprehensive survey and they that was one of the questions they asked and it comes out statistically psht, across the board exactly matching the overall population. So, um, but I I was wondering about that too, at the time.
1: Yeah, well. I. I I get people of all different races and, you know, all over the world, they can't, they don't all have, you know, that that blood type.
0: It fluctuates from, from places. There's some places like uh, um, Portugal, I think has a higher rate of RH negative blood. And so there's in the Mongolian, Mongolia has a higher rate of RH negative blood. So there's these little pockets where there's this statistical oddities show up, but um,
1: I think it's mostly, they're just tracking families. Um, this is something, I mean, Jim Sparks, they told him they've been following him since caveman times. Uh, they told uh, Anne, who's in, whose case is in the book, that they've been following her since biblical times. M- number of people can track it down at two, three, four generations in their family. So I think that's probably the primary thing about who's being contacted. But there's lots of one-offs. You know, A couple of cases in the book, this is their only experience. So I don't know. I think there's multiple different – like I said, profession definitely has a influence on whether you'll be contacted or not. Whether you're out on a highway late at night, just in the right place at the right time, that's a factor. If you live in a hot spot like upstate New York or
0: I'm, – I'm in upstate New York right now. So.
1: There, there you go. Uh, so there's a number of different reasons I think people are contacted.
0: Yeah. Hey, we're kind of – Gone a little bit over, but this has been actually been a lot more fun than I thought it would be, this conversation. I I made up that list this morning thinking like, oh, this this, you know, because I didn't want to dwell too much on the book because Whitley had done such a good interview and no need to cover that ground. So I figured, like, oh, well, let's talk about your methodology and such. Hey, just before we leave, um, Ann Streber, uh Whitley's wife, had what she called her BS detector. And this is what she said, because she read all the letters uh, that came in for Whitley after the book communion was published and it was some outrageous number there's no way to know exactly but some estimates are as high as a quarter of a million letters came into Whitley through the
1: post office yeah one one from me by the way and <laughs> uh, one from me one from me too yeah so
0: uh and she read all of those and then talking to people in the years after and she said you know like I know I have my bs detector I can tell if people have had They're telling the truth about their contact experience because if it's not weird, I don't trust it. (laughs) And that's my sense, too, that there is this mixed-up, purposely bizarre aspect to people's experiences, and your book is full of it. It's just one story after another that's just... uh, There's no other word. It's just these are weird, weird experiences.
1: Yeah, I mean... There's a pattern certainly to onboard experiences and to a certain extent i can predict what a person's going to say I mean, accounts of a person being examined are fairly common in round walls indirect lighting uh you know the transparent walls portholes these sort of things but there's always these bizarrely unique elements too it's just layers and layers and it's just far stranger and
0: you know what what I've talked to people and, and you mentioned it in the book, and it's the first time I've ever read it in the book, the way you wrote it, it may be in other books, but I think this is the first time I've ever actually read it, but I've kind of gleaned it from talking with people, and they'll say, "Oh, I was on board the craft and then and then we were just going away from the Earth and just Earth and I could see Earth, and then I could see the moon, and we were out in space and and I never hear them say, "I looked out the window and I saw that." It's more like, and in, in Suzanne Chancellor said it that she was in the craft, and this being next to her just kind of, like, waved its hand the way you would, way you would, uh, like you would wipe steam off of a window that had steam on it, and then all of a sudden the the wall was translucent, and you were simply looking out into space not through a window but just through a magically invisible, the hull of the ship, suddenly,
1: to their perception, is gone. <laughs> yeah, Joe Gardner's. Described it as being like inside Wonder Woman's jet, which made me laugh. <laughs> I, I heard someone else say the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. That's one of the red flags. I certainly
0: uh, did. I give anything away? I can edit that out if it's like if I'm not supposed to talk about these red flag things. So, so other researchers have a way to to test their their the validity of the story.
1: Yeah, well, you can tell when a person is. You know, they always start like very quakingly. I've not told anybody. Like one guy uh, in the book, Gary. He's told only his wife and his best friend and me. That's it. And they'll start crying. You know, they're very nervous.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's that's. I've seen a lot of people cry. Yeah, or heard a lot of people cry on the phone too.
1: Yeah. So you, I mean, you can tell right off when someone is uh, sincere. Um, they're very nervous about talking often.
0: There's a there's a researcher named Jeff Krapel, and he does uh, work into almost religious experiences, like profound mystical experiences. And this is in essence, the the it plays out like UFO contact, because when he said this, I just knew exactly what he meant. He said, you know, you talk to the people and they, they let one story out. And and then they let another story out. And you would think if you just had all the data, everything would make sense. But what happens is each story gets progressively stranger. So the more data you have, it doesn't make it easier to make sense. It makes the whole thing so much more weird because you're just getting one more weird piece of information and it it doesn't help you as the researcher kind of left looking at this collection of weirdness instead of a logical, pragmatic set of data points.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like one guy I just mentioned, Gary, he's from England. I did a very extensive interview with him. You know, he recently read the book, and he was going through the other people's stories. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, I have to tell you that this happened to me too, and this and these were, you know, questions I didn't want to get too deeply into them because he was pretty traumatized by what happened to him. He's, you know, working through it, uh, but he got a lot of corroboration from other people's accounts. And it's like, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't tell you this. I didn't know that it was connected, but this happened to me too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, all kinds of red flags that you can use to vet sort of corroborate people's experiences.
0: Hey, this has been a ton of fun. I, it was much more fun than I was I expected it to be. I just I'm I'm glad I kind of went down this road with all these, you know, sort of little rapid fire short questions that uh, I think I laughed a lot more on this this uh, episode than I <laughs> usually do. So uh, Awesome. Good. And then um how do people get a hold of you?
1: Uh it shouldn't be hard if you just Google my name. It should take you to my website. The actual address is Weebly. .com. It's two N's, two T's, and Dennett. And uh, you can contact me through my website. Yeah, I love hearing from people, whether they've got a story they want to share or a question or a comment or whatever. But all my books are on my website, excerpts. You can purchase my books through my website or you know on Amazon or other online retailers or in bookstores. And uh, yeah, th- thanks for having me on the show, Mike. I really appreciate it.
0: Good. Hey, and once again anyone listening to this, make sure to listen to the interview that was put online just three days ago by Whitley. And that interview with you is great. So um, uh, do yourself a favor and listen to that one. Yeah. Hey, Preston, this was great. And I look forward to talking to you more.
1: Hey, yeah, me too. Anytime. You got it. Great. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.
0: This is Mike, and I am chiming in at the end of the editing. Now, during this interview, I brought up the nine knocks, and this is something Whitley had written about, and it came up when we were talking about 333 and how it shows up synchronistically in the lives of UFO experiencers. Now, Whitley wrote about this in his book Transformation, which is book two of the Communion series. He described nine loud knocks on the wall of his cabin, and I think this would have been. 1986. This happened late at night, and it played out with a mechanical exactness. Nine knocks in three sets of three. Now that book, if you haven't read it, is well worth reading. And Whitley pointed out that back in the early 70s, he was in touch with a man who had given him nine questions. And like the knocks on the wall of his cabin, these nine questions came in three groups of three. Now I am going to read an excerpt from the book Transformation. The Nine Knocks are nine questions. Group 1. What is the nature of the substance or problem? What is its origin? What is its composition? Group 2. What is its function? Who possesses, controls, or causes it? What is my opinion of it? Group three. What is my relationship to it? What are my expectations of it? What is its destiny? Perhaps the nine knocks were organized into three groups of three for reasons I know nothing about, but they jogged my memory and I could use the nine questions to clarify things for myself. I understood that the only thing now standing between me and helpless panic was my ability to ask questions. The trick would be, though, not to jump on definite final answers. Simple answers close doors. And I did not want to close them. I wanted to open them wider. That was an excerpt from Whitley Strieber's book, Transformation, Book 2 of the Communion series. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.